Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. Our mission is to uncover what it takes to build a unicorn business. For Season 3, we're speaking to some of the best founders, many from unicorn companies, and asking them about their journey, operational insight, tips and lessons they've learned along the way. Today's episode is with Tamor Atagechi, CEO and founder at Papier. Papier has created stationery that feeds curiosity and contemplation. Papier recently announced a Series C round, taking total funding to over $65 million from investors such as DMG Ventures, Jam Jar, and Felix Capital. In this episode, we cover Tamor's journey with the tab, his three years at Bain & Co., how he has made a success of Papier, and in particular, their unique product branding, which has led to more reordering. We also cover culture and other fascinating topics, such as where do you hire great growth people? Another super episode, so let's get started. Hi, Tamar. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Thanks for joining us. Nice. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So we're starting each of these episodes in season three with a broad question, which is what does entrepreneurship mean to you? So for me, I think it it's all about building something out of nothing or very little. I think most people I know who are kind of born entrepreneurs just like to build uh, and they really like to build from scratch. And I think the bit they enjoy the most is that bit from zero to 100 and then from 100 onwards, uh, the role becomes much more being a CEO than an entrepreneur in that respect. But that's what entrepreneurship is all about. It's about building something out of nothing. Yeah, and lots of our listeners would have heard of the tab. So I just want to yeah, start start off today's episode with a bit about your journey. Yeah, so I was a co-founder along with two good friends of mine at university. And going back to that point about entrepreneurship, that kind of what it was, we were at university and for most people who were at university, the kind of local newspaper or university newspapers was at the time quite highbrow. It was especially we were at Cambridge. It was kind of full of essays and poetry. Uh, and a group of us just thought, I think the university could do with some more lighthearted tabloid style news. And so that was the experiment. We said, well, let's launch a tabloid at Cambridge. And we went about and effectively built a team of editors, writers, photographers, and built the tab, which was hugely successful within the university itself. It was a kind of a bit of that Facebook moment when you just kind of walk past dorms and everyone's glued to their screen, just reading the latest tab articles that I'd written or someone else had written. And it spread very quickly from there. And then I went on to not pursue it as a business, but Jack and George, the co-founders, did and scaled it into the US. Balderton was one of the main investors behind it. So um, you can scale media as well. Yeah, I'm, I remember it coming to Newcastle. Definitely a breath of fresh air. And so when you decided to step away, what made you take a more conventional job route for the next few years? And did you know that you'd come back to being a founder one day? Or had you sort of temporarily written that off as a route? So I, I knew I wanted to build businesses and be an entrepreneur. But what I also knew is that I was fairly young in that journey and had a lot to learn and in some ways had a lot of the kind of more hard skills to learn. So in particular, 
you know, studying history of art doesn't necessarily equip you with the ability to build a financial model. And so I really wanted to get some of those skills. And I joined a management consultancy house called Bain uh, as a strategy consultant. And I actually said in my interview that, you know, I want to set up a business and leave after a few years. And it's very normal. And most people at Bain have heard that a hundred times before, and they're very supportive of it. And our investors are ex-Bain entrepreneurs. So the innocent founders, being a kind of school ground almost to build some skills to set up businesses is quite, quite normal. We've had a bunch of founders on, on riding unicorns who've actually been at Bain, but consultancies more broadly. And I wonder what part Bain played for you in founding Papier and whether you were working for a stationary business as a project or something like that. No, actually the, the, the seeds and the, the kind of where Papier as a business came to me wasn't doing any work in that sector. I did very little work in retail or consumer, actually. I, I learned everything I know about consumer e-com through Papier, literally learning on the job. I had no no skills from there. It's more of the kind of, I guess, wider transferable skills of building a presentation deck. It's quite useful when you're out pitching to investors. And one thing Bain does teach you, or any consultant has teaches to make pretty slides. So I learned a bunch of stuff there, which was helpful. I learned nothing about the sector I'm in. All of that came very much through Papier. And so where was the inspiration for Papier? And what did you do in the first 12 months? I think a lot of people may be in jobs at the moment, they've got an idea that's, you know, burning on their brain, and they, they don't know necessarily what the first steps are. So what did you do in those first kind of 12 months? For, for me, I was probably like many of your listeners in a mode where I was really keen to find an avenue, a path, like looking for that apple to fall off a tree somewhere. I was really kind of not pushing it, but receptive to ideas and to concepts. Everywhere I was looking, everything I was using was a potential, is this a potential area? And I knew I wanted to be in consumer because I love that interaction with the end user and the end consumer, whether that's, you know, through the tab, being a distributor of news or through physical products, ultimately seeing consumers use and interact with the product. I loved that. And I happen to be a massive user of stationary products every day. I have a massive collection at home. Everywhere I traveled, I'd buy it. So that piqued my interest where I said, well, what is this category that I hadn't really looked into? The more I scratched the surface of it, the more I realized it was a bit of a hidden gem in terms of size. It's a massive $200 billion market completely unpenetrated online at the time, no disruption for decades. So that was kind of the entry point. And in terms of how I started, I think this is where my consultant roots probably really do have it. I started by opening PowerPoint and started to actually build a deck. And I mean, that ultimately became the pitch deck, but it was a way for me to almost tell the story myself or at least understand the story. So what is this market? Who are the competitors that we're playing in, et cetera. So that that was really how I started. I almost like crafted the narrative and the story through slides. It's actually quite a different story to a lot of the founders we've had on Riding Unicorns have, have been typically people building software to fix something that's broken. And what's interesting here is that it's it's creating an online presence for stationaries. 
I think for me, that was part of the attraction and it, bringing it online was big part of it. The other was bringing it into the modern age, as in this is this is an area where most brands and this is another important angle to this. Yeah, I'm obsessive about brands and the role brand plays. You know, I find the water category fascinating because you literally have all these brands selling the most commoditized products of them all. I mean, Evian tastes the same as Volvic and Vittel and blah, blah, blah. So the whole concept of brand was fascinating to me too. So we had a category that, as you say, wasn't online from a brand perspective, had very little loyalty, had very little love for any particular brand but then you had a consumer set that were obsessed with the category so there was a real lack of a brand there so I really loved that challenge of actually saying well this is a category that needs to be brought into the modern age these are consumers that are looking for a brand that they can be part of as opposed to as you say a kind of classic engineering problem you know when people talk about setting up businesses and what advice I always say just do it as quickly as you can A, because you'll talk yourself out of it or because smarter people than you will give you good reasons not to do it. And you're entering a market where you're going to have to acquire customers and basket bags, et cetera, et cetera. And if you took that to say, well, yeah, probably a good point. I won't start it. Then you won't ever try and solve that problem in itself or at least trying to experience it yourself. So, you know, in reality, how did we solve that? Well, you know, in the stationary category, baskets are built up by multiple products and they are very high margin. So the combination of those two things means that, you know, we as a business can be profitable on each acquisition that we we make. But a lot of it is boils down to execution as well. So being able to execute on the brand, the way that the brand communicates through advertising, through marketing, that allows us to provide that kind of experience. And the other bit that perhaps we now know is the virality in the product as well so if you have a product that people either gift or people distribute so wedding stationery being a good example of you sending that to hundreds of people you're going to get a a nice chunk of organic acquisition as well that helps with your acquisition costs so all things i know now but i did not forecast any of that on day one Yes, really really interesting and you might have answered some of the questions i'm about to pose now but You've recently announced a large Series C round, taking total funding to like over $65 million from top investors such as Berenger, DMG Ventures, Jamjar and Felix Capital. So top, top investors. Uh, you mentioned starting with just a pitch deck. Now you've gone through all those funding rounds. So what has the funding journey been like? And you mentioned a few things there, but what else do you wish you'd known earlier that may have helped you with funding? I mean, the first thing to say to any listener is it's a choice to take that journey. It's really important that prospective entrepreneurs don't think there's only one route. There are plenty of absolutely astonishing successes which have raised very little or no capital. So it's a choice to take that journey and one that needs to be made very consciously. Again, going through those motions earlier on and knowing kind of what that would look like and how that is something that's always useful to know. But in reality, what that looks like over time is effectively a journey that's accelerated. And that's the choice that I made and many entrepreneurs that take capital make, which is they're trying to get from A to B faster. And if capital gets you there faster, then capital can be a really good way of doing so. But there are times where capital can't speed up a journey. So for us, it's about making mistakes faster. It's about trying things faster as well. I mean, we as a business entered the US market in our third year of trading 
Whereas many businesses, especially born in the UK, may not do that for decades and they'll be building their UK business. So that's an example of, I think, what that funding journey does and looks like. It allows you to try a lot of things much faster than you otherwise would because you have that capital that's really there to test and learn, in my view. What are some of the some of the things that sort of keep you up at night when running Papier? I'm luckily a really good sleeper, so not many things keep me up at night. But it's different things depending on where you are in your journey. You know, for any entrepreneurs out there who are about to embark on fundraising, then that's definitely something that's going to be on your mind, which is, you know, how successful is this capital raise going to be? When you're not, you're kind of thinking much more about the issues or the challenges that the business is facing at any given time. For me, I think the thing that I spend most of my time thinking about is the people side of the business, you know, making sure that we've got people that are happy, that are engaged, that are motivated and driven, and that we can retain some of the best talent that we have. I think that for me is always something that that's on my mind. I mean, I wonder how... You know, you've talked about the f- sort of free viral marketing, which is super interesting, which is basically that your products are kind of mass leafleting built into the product. But I wonder how you've kind of seen the performance marketing side of things kind of change over time. I mean, we're still trading at acquisition economics that are better than they were several years ago. So for us, we've had an unusual trajectory where they haven't been going up, but been either flat or declining. And that's in part because I think there is that natural virality effect, which only gets bigger and better as the business and brand scales. I think for the listeners who are well into their performance marketing or thinking about that, it is in itself a practice area that differentiates different consumer businesses. You've got to be good at it. There was a time that probably you could have a fantastic product fantastic brand and didn't have great performance marketing and could get away with it now the bar is so high you really do need to be fantastic at both the brand the art and the math the data and the science that sits under it you know we have a team of over 20 people in our performance marketing uh, organization we do everything ourselves we don't outsource it we build our own attribution models in-house so for anyone looking at Papier and seeing what is a really beautiful brand, what sits behind that brand is often what I call our secret superpower, which is data and a hell of a lot of very sophisticated data and very smart people that are very finely tuning our marketing engine day in, day out to be able to acquire profitably. And I think that is just what any consumer business these days has to do. Can you lift the lid at all on the data side of things and you know any practical you know hints at what you guys have done to scale those marketing efforts to build your brand fast anything like that any clever tips that our listeners could benefit from well one one tip really comes down to how you attribute and your attribution what i would say there is increasingly now making sure that for anyone who is still using just a simple last click attribution that they really do migrate away from that. At Papier, we look at a variety of touch points, including an exit survey. And that's so critical. And that was one of the things we introduced a year and a bit ago, because increasingly the way that consumers consume media is through things like video. And that could be through a TikTok reel, it could be through a YouTube video. And those are increasingly not necessarily click through type ads and they are ads that people are seeing and eventually going through so you really do 
need to understand how or what first took the customer to your site. And the most old fashioned question at the end of a checkout that says, where did you first hear about the brand is still incredibly useful and incredibly powerful as part of that attribution mix. So that's a tip. Yeah, that's really interesting. Just like instead of trying to guess (laughs) through like macros and things, you just ask them. And I was going to ask you broadly about hiring and growth, but you mentioned there that you've got a 20 plus strong team of kind of growth and performance marketers. Where's the best place to hire growth people from and what kind of skill sets do they need? So growth or performance marketing is a relatively new phenomenon or concept. So actually, it's in some ways easier now than it was maybe five or six years ago, because the training grounds exist, whether they are through agencies or through brands, and people are learning by doing, and there are many more practitioners of it. In terms of where you find those people, I mean, every consumer brand now has people in the business who are doing that. And in terms of what you look for, curiosity is really important because these platforms and these channels change. And so you need to be naturally very curious about what things we can do differently, um, what we can try differently. And of course, you've got to be analytical. Um, That's at the heart of it. Kind of zooming out a little bit from that, I wonder how your role as an as an individual has changed from that zero to one kind of first year or even pre-launch to you know now now running a team of over a hundred and any idea on you know whether you prefer that very very early stage as you spoke about at the beginning it's you know often what entrepreneurs seek is the building zero to one type stuff i wonder what what that journey has looked like for you so that really early bit is definitely a lot of fun it's where you're effectively the salesperson, the head of ops, the head of HR, you're, you're a bit of everything. And it's absolutely the training ground that any entrepreneur wants to go through or why they do it. And that does change. I mean, my role now, I mean, most of those bits I've mentioned now have been taken away from me. I'm not, you know, whether it's people in HR and ops, you know, those are now part of different departments within the business. And so the role of the founder is almost to becomes to almost not meddle too much i think the biggest challenge entrepreneurs face is they can't really get with that program of being pulled away from the coal face and you hear so many stories of you know founders walking in and saying oh let's do this now and let's do that now and it can be quite difficult for a business so part of my job is to not meddle um, and to be basically very conscious about where i apply myself where I can be valuable and that typically is three areas one is strategy so I have or any founder or entrepreneur has the one advantage they have over everyone else in the business is they have more context than everyone else in the business because they sit literally across everything and by having that you're able to be uh, you know kind of 30,000 feet above and think more strategically than everyone else in the business and that's not because the founder is is smarter. It's just literally because they're at a vantage point that's higher than everyone else. So they can think strategically. So strategy is kind of one of that, those areas. Second is on people. When I'm not leading our HR and people function, I have an important role in making sure we hire the right people. We're shaping culture the way it should be. And I have an important role in being very direct with people at all levels to say thank you and well done. I mean, that 
as time goes on, you know, that uh, impact is even larger when the business gets larger. If the CEO or the founder is reaching out to people to say they've done a great job. Uh, and the third is, is on that funding journey, right? It's managing the partners that we've got on board. And by that, I mean our investors who's become part of that journey, making sure that they very much also feel part of that team and that journey. So those are kind of, that's how I split my time. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we've had a few guests talk about trying to get out the way of their teams. And so it's interesting to hear that that's uh, something that you've noticed as well. And you touched a little bit there on culture. So how have you approached culture at Papier? And what would we notice if Hector and I came in for a day and spent a day with the team? What would we notice about the environment? There's a few things people notice uh, when they come into Papier. The first which I love is it's not immediately apparent who's senior and who's not. So it's very, very flat. And that's, you know, partly by design in terms of how we structure the layout, the business, but it does feel like a group of, and we're now about 120 people all contributing to this bigger purpose and this bigger mission. It's not immediately apparent who's in charge, which I love. We want the space to feel like a studio in that respect. The other thing I think people definitely notice is the creativity. If you walk around Maison Papier, every inch of it has been designed. Every piece of furniture has been bought um, through auctions all around Europe. All the walls aligned with a lot of our prints. And you will literally see people creating artworks that we have print designers and artists who are, who are working. So you'll feel that creativity, which is a core value at Papier. And I hope, and most people, whenever they do meet with PAPS, they feel that kindness. It's a very kind organization. It's very considered and it's very thoughtful. And I don't think it's a coincidence that's in part because the products that we sell are at the heart of that, right? But this is a product where people are sending notes to one another. People love writing. So as a result of being interested in the category, I do think we also attract really kind and considered people. I wonder what, what excites you the most about the next five, 10 years for Papier. I'm partly biased because I'm currently doing this recording from New York. And therefore, whenever I'm here, I'm definitely thinking much more about international. But that is the bit that excites me at the moment most. I think we have a really clear ambition to build a global category defining brand in this category. And in order to be truly global, we need to really make the US a very big part of the business. And that means significantly you know, 70, 80% of the business. And, and so what excites me is actually starting to feel this brand live and be global. That doesn't mean shipping globally, which a lot of brands do. That really does mean having people here in New York who are you know, under the Papier umbrella, who are wearing the Papier name and having that kind of global team that's something that for me is fairly new and fairly big part of my own learning journey and something that i find massively exciting yeah i'm not surprised it would be exciting to be kind of taking your business global as much as we love understanding more about the business and you've already given some really interesting operational insight into what you've done on the journey we also want to get to know you a bit as a founder and understand a bit about what drives you so what are you looking to get out of your career? I mean, do you have a personal mission statement or anything like that? Like, what's really driving you? No, I don't. I don't have a thing as grand as a person, personal mission statement. But 
I do definitely feel compelled to make some kind of mark. And that's definitely not in a power, want my name on a building type way, but just think anything that I can do that leaves an imprint on people. And I always think about that trying to be multi-generational. I think as humans, most people want things that outlast them. I think that's why you could argue if we're going to get very philosophical, people have children. And in some ways, building brands and building businesses is a bit like that. You want something to be left there. You want a mark to be made. And that for me is what I will continue to spend my career doing or my life doing. Legacy is definitely probably something actually that we haven't talked to our guests enough about, but I'm sure they all feel similarly about it. Anyway, Tamor, it's been fantastic having you on the show. We'd like to finish with the dinner party guest game where you may invite three people of your choice, dead or alive, to a dinner. Who would you have, I wonder? I'm not going to use any of those three seats on friends or family, so I'm going to apologise to family (laughs) for that reason. So the first person is linked to my absolute obsession and passion with cooking. I cook the whole time and... Anna Del Conte is an Italian chef and cook who is pretty much the godmother of all Italian cooking, especially in the UK. She's 97 years old. She's a force of nature. I've never met her, but I would basically spend half the time just talking about her trips to Italy, which I also love, and cooking. So Anna will be one. By the way, another apology. The last person guest I'd want is another entrepreneur because we'd just talk about the impact of iOS 14 on CPAs or something boring like that. So I'd have an artist as the second. I studied history of art and I'd probably have Fiesta Gates, who's an American-based black artist who I've been a long admirer of. And partly the reason I'd have him is he is effectively a philosopher as well. And I would just be mesmerized and want to talk to him and get as intellectual as I can and not talk about iOS 14, as I said. And the third person I'd have is not alive, and that is the one and only Freddie Mercury from Queen. The reason I'd have Freddie Mercury is I live next door to where he lived in London. And all I know of is the incredible parties that he had in that house. If you've seen Bohemian Rhapsody, you'll kind of see some of those parties. But I would just want to hear about those parties and potentially recreate a bit of that at this three-person dinner party. Awesome. I think that's three marks for originality, isn't it, James? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. It's been great hearing about how you have made a stationary brand so dynamic. And it's also been great hearing about how you've lots of tactics like using your physical product as a sort of viral marketing tool. Also interesting to hear about the vantage point of the CEO, which you put concisely and is often overlooked the context that a CEO has that makes them able to make these big strategic decisions. So lots of insight, lots of anecdote. It's been fantastic having you on the show. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening and learned a little bit more about how to build a unicorn. We have just one more episode in season three, and then we'll be back soon after for season four. To make sure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe to Riding Unicorns on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening.